Lord Christ, speak your words of life into all of us this morning. Reorient us, recalibrate us, reform us, restore us, heal us. We ask all these things in your name and by your name. Amen. Amen. Morning, everyone. So we're going to be Romans 12 this morning. Okay, two verses. I've only limited myself to two verses. I laughed at myself. I told Paul this earlier, early in the week. I was like, I'm going to do Romans 12, 1 through 8. Let's just say it was pretty apparent in day one of my prep that was not going to happen. So we're going to do two verses. So I would encourage you to get your Bibles out or your app or what have you. Have that close at hand. We're going to do, we're going to do a deep dive and do kind of the, the equivalent of a spiritual four by fouring. Okay? So Romans is Paul's magnum opus. Very theological, right? His most carefully argued letter. It's very apologetic in its tone and its progression. But I don't, I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees with Romans. Romans is at heart. It's a bird's eye view of the gospel. It just happens to be in long form. So two major divisions in Romans that will set the stage for us. You've got chapters 1 to 11 and 12 to 16. If you had to divide it up in two pieces, those are the two pieces you would choose. 1 through 11, Paul develops that argument that I'm talking about, that apologetic for the gospel. He lays a foundation really carefully. He lays some groundwork. Chapter 12, where we begin today and onward, he turns towards exhortation. And he talks more about uh, ethics. Uh, how does the gospel teach us to live? It's kind of like chapters 1 through 11. He teaches us all this stuff. And then having taught us all this about the gospel, chapter 12 and onward is like the grand, okay, so what, right? You're hard-pressed in 1 through 11 to find many commands. There's just not a lot there. But 12 and onward, there's all these exhortations and commands and imperatives and all these things that we shall live, like gospel ethics, how we should do community and such. I don't know if we could turn the... These other mics off, we're getting some wind noise. That would be wonderful. So for those of you that have thumbed through Romans before, <clears throat> obviously <clears throat> you come into it and it's, it's pretty hard to miss its theological tone. But it's not just a treatise. That's not just what it is without any practical import. That's not what it is. You just have to follow Paul very carefully from 1 through 11. And it's admittedly a pretty long detailed road. You have to follow him until you arrive at 12 today and go, ah, okay, so this is where we're going, or this is what all this is about. So if 1 through 11 is true, 12 and following are kind of the imperatives, the how then shall we live, the so what. This is rubber meets the road. So we're practical, so this should appeal to us. Uh, Finally, just to put it maybe crudely, 1 through 11 lays out what God did for us in Jesus, that gift of grace his rescue of us in Jesus. 12 and onward tells us what is our response to that? What should that look like? What does gratitude and obedience look like given all that I've just laid out? And that response, let me say this, though I'm not going to, uh, it's presumed as I go through this, it's the holy, the powerment of the Holy Spirit is presumed here, okay? The continuing provision of God at work in our lives, that's presumed here. So this isn't a fleshly thing. This isn't, I'm going to try really hard because God did all this for me. We are ever needful of something beyond the fuel of the flesh, okay? So that's just presumed. So you ready? Romans 12, 1 and 2. I get my pages to stop flipping here. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We'll get to verse 2 in a moment. 
I don't know about you, Romans has a lot of famous verses. These two, I think, might be among the most famous. This is what our response to the grace of Jesus should look like. Now, verse 1, massive hinge verse. Big, big, big pivot point if there ever were one. Therefore, what's the joke? What do you see when you see a therefore? What's the question you ask? Was it there for exactly? You have to watch these with Paul. He loves his therefores. Okay? What's it there for? It's a little bit like he's saying, okay, look, here's what I'm getting at. Alluding back to 1 through 11. Or, hey, given all the above, this. So this might be one of the most important therefores in Paul's entire work. There's a call to look back. Look back at 1 through 11. Look at everything I laid out. If that, then this. That's the therefore. Now, what Paul laid out, beginning in Romans 1, was the devolving human condition. What life apart from God looks like. How sin results in idolatry, foolishness, and and corrupted minds. And there's a whole list of things there. But now in 12.1, he's setting a contrast. There's a turn here. What does a restored, redeemed, reconciled version of humanity actually look like? That's where 12 is going to begin to play out. And he exhorts us, or he appeals to us, or some translations say he urges us. This is something between, how would I say it? It's between a request and a command. It's not just, yes, could be a good idea, but he's not putting the hammer down. I would say it's about as close to a command as you can get without uh, giving one. So he's exhorting us. I exhort you. I urge you. I, I appeal to you in light of God's mercies, in view of God's mercies. Again, that's all about everything he laid out in 11, 1 through 11. Everything about the gospel, everything God has done for you, given the gospel which saved you, you should do what? Here's where I want to focus, especially for verse 1. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Very vivid. Bodies. Let's talk about that for a minute. We are embodied creatures, right? We're an interconnected and I think somewhat mysterious mix of matter, right? Physicality, soul, but also soul, spirit, heart, all these things. So we worship God with our bodies, right? We receive the Eucharist. We receive it with our hands. We taste it with our mouths. We see things happening. We hear things with our ear. We worship with our bodies. We sit. We stand. We raise our hands. We kneel. We perhaps pace. Sometimes I pace when I worship. Our bodies, this flesh and bone, uh, are not something uh, other than us. So when Paul's exhorting us to present our bodies to the Lord, he probably has a very different understanding of what that body means than what, how you and I understand it. We have, we kind of been, have inherited a, a very Western, we're Westerners, so we tend to have a pretty rational understanding of things, including our body. Uh, so Paul's talking about something different here than just, yeah, this thing, this machine that is me. No, Paul is beckoning us to bring all of who we are, everything. This is what he means present that or to offer that to God. In a sense, it's kind of returning to God what is his for holy use and service. It's kind of a grand return to sender. So present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now this presentation, this offering of ourselves, it can't be coerced. Really can't. It's either made willingly or it isn't. So if you grasp the magnitude and the scandal and the new law, which is grace, that gospel which Paul has talked about in 1 through 11, if you get it, 
You can offer yourself to God in no other way. You can't. However, if you present or offer yourself to God as a way of trying to, let's say, pay him back. Um, you did this for me, so I'm going to try to earn that. Ooh, don't try that. Can't do it. Trying to earn the grace given or attempting to sort of maybe earn God's favor, right? He's that father that you can't please, but you sure must try and you better try really hard. You do that kind of offering or maybe you offer, present yourself out of duty. That's what I should do. I'll do it. Or out of guilt, right? These show that we don't understand the gospel of Jesus if we offer ourselves in this way to God. It shows us that grace has not gripped us yet, hasn't transformed us yet. And God neither requires nor wants that from you or I. He wants us to make a willing offering of ourselves out of gratitude. So I doubt that you missed the language of a living sacrifice. Very careful wording, Paul's part. Very careful image on Paul's part. Couldn't be more intentional. Couldn't be. So in thinking thinking through sacrifice, there are different types of animals that were sacrificed in Jewish worship for different reasons. Now, many of these were rendered unnecessary because of Jesus' sacrifice. But a live animal sacrifice... It's an image and an idea that any first century person would understand. Not just Christians. It was just common. People were familiar with this. So Paul uses it. The larger significance of an animal sacrifice. An animal gave up its life. An animal gave up everything it had in the service of humanity's restored relationship with the Lord. It was an act of worship to sacrifice an animal. It was something of devotion or thankfulness or repentance very often. In some cases, the priest would lay his hands on that animal before killing it, clearly symbolizing that this animal died in my place. This is is dying so that I might live. It was taking his place as a sin offering. You're dying in my place. He would do this before he killed the animal. Very, Very dramatic, very intentional to restore the rift created most often by sin. So the big idea here, I think, is very similar. We're offering God everything by giving ourselves to him as a living sacrifice, giving him uh, our gifts, giving him our talents, giving our money, our desires, our family, our relationships, our dreams, everything. That is a true living sacrifice. So when you present your body, the whole of your life as a sacrifice to the Lord, you don't hold anything back. I hope you're hearing that really loud and clear. You can't. That's not a true offering. It's not a living sacrifice. Uh, Jesus, the Lord, he gets it all. He put it all there in the altar. That's why the language of sacrifice is often one of dedication, right? Sort of setting something aside, something to the Lord. It's the language of holiness. It's the language of worship. Think of that story back when Hannah dedicates, sets aside Samuel to the Lord. She fully has to give him up. She gives him over to God's service. So presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice is what we do in earnest right here. It's what we're doing right now. It happens every Sunday morning. It's just that on a communal level. When we worship, we dedicate ourselves. We set ourselves apart for God. We offer him ourselves as a living sacrifice as a community. That's our, the work we're doing this morning. It's part of it. Now, it makes tremendous sense then. That this kind of whole self-sacrifice, this kind of whole human offering I'm talking about, is described in this way. Living, I've already said that, holy and well-pleasing or acceptable to the Lord. That's all worship language from the Old Testament. Every bit of it, all sacrificial language 
living, that's kind of a duh, but as in we've been made alive in Christ, thus we're then truly free to present ourselves back to God, holy, as in, as I said before, we're set apart by God for his sacred purposes because Christ has now clothed us in his righteousness and pleasing or acceptable, which I think is the natural result of that holiness. There's a lot there, folks. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. This is your spiritual worship or your spiritual act of worship. I'm nearing the end of verse 1. This is tricky. I'll be really honest. Spiritual is, that word there, it's not straightforward. Uh, And describing worship as something spiritual can be misleading. Because as I've said, uh, our worship is not just spiritual. It's physical. It's embodied. We enact things, right? It's a notoriously difficult word. The root of it means reasonable or rational. But let me press a bit more into the connotation of that. It really means worship that is fitting. Worship that is a, a proper for those in Christ Jesus. It's like true worship. One translation uh, words it that way. I think that's good. This is your true worship. This is your fitting worship. This is your proper worship, your true worship. I think that suits what Paul's trying to say better. Okay? And worship, I'm going to assume you know what that means. <laughs> I'm not going to tarry too long on that. Service un- rendered unto God. So here's verse 1. Okay? If I can recap it, encapsulate it. If you understand the gospel, if you understand what Jesus has done for you, this is how your life's going to look. The entirety of your life will be a sacrificial offering, and it's, that is your act of fitting and true worship. Okay? This morning, again, is our communal enactment of that very thing. That's verse 1. 2. My, everything is blowing all over the place up here. Do not be transformed to this world. Do not be conformed, excuse me, to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by, the te- by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what's good, acceptable, and perfect. Well, this too is just as much of a doozy as the first one. It's certainly related to verse 1. There's a lot of debate about how exactly it's related, but it's not random. It's not disconnected. It's not just this new thought Paul's uh, bringing about. Something. Uh, verse 2 is kind of the method of means for how we do verse 1, possibly. I'm not sure about that. Regardless, I think we can hear the admonitions here, and I'll focus on two of them. First one, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. This world, or age, some translations say, that Paul speaks of, what he means is this. This is the age dominated by the prince of the air, by sin, and ruled by death. That's the world. When he says the world, that's what he's talking about. This is the realm from which Jesus rescued us he brought us into a different realm did he not into the realm of his marvelous light and light that's why the scriptures can exhort us to be in the world right we still experience the influence of sin and death surrounds us but not be of the world we are citizens now in a different kingdom a different realm a heavenly realm so jesus has carried us transferred us if you will from a worldly life of sin and death and into a new and eternal life in him so, don't be conformed to the world. In other words, it's kind of like, why would you go back to that old place of sin and death, that unredeemed and prevailing pagan culture? Why would you allow yourself to be shaped and literally molded, to conform means, into its likeness? Why would you do that? 
that age-old temptation of, maybe I'll just go back to Egypt, you know? Shouldn't our identity be fundamentally shaped by God's rescue far more than our former life in Egypt? Follow my meaning? As a Christian, conforming to or being conformed to the world, that actually is a return to servitude. That's actually a return to slavery. Jesus sets us free, but there's always that siren's call to return to the place of enslavement. Think of the Israelites. At least we had meat to eat in Egypt, right? There's always a temptation to go back. Now, Paul is most certainly exhorting these Roman Christians to live counter-culturally. As Christians, we should feel tremendously uncomfortable. We just should, in any culture, not just Rome. But let me tell you a little bit about their situation. Uh, They were probably affluent, these Roman Christians, by first century standards, but they still lived under pagan Roman rule. So Paul's telling them, don't live according, according to the Roman culture. Don't live according to their political ideology. Don't conform to that world, but rather be governed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, right? Countercultural call. It's always there for us. So relevant now, always will be relevant. Now, let's put some uh, meat on these bones. What ways does our 21st century American culture seek to mold us into its image? I'm going to give you three pretty contemporary examples, okay? First one, what happens in November? Anybody know? Has anything happened in November? Seen any ads about it lately? Yeah, chuckle, chuckle. The election. Now, do you think, I'm going to use the two major ones. I'm going to talk red and blue because they're the big dogs. Do you think that Republicans and Democrats are hoping to convert you to their way of thinking and seeing things? Do you think? Yes, absolutely they are. Now that's a problem because neither blue nor red fully represent a comprehensive biblical ethic. That's a problem. In their own way, they seek to co-opt the Christian faith and to sort of marry it to some version of nationalism. Folks, biblically, that dog just won't hunt. It just won't. So the question with that issue, will you be more conformed by politics or by the gospel of Jesus? Which one will shape you? Which one are you going to listen to? Second example of something, uh, and this isn't strictly American. I think this is 21st century, but I think we're pretty good at it. Consumerism. Okay? Marketing and media industries spend billions. Think of how much. That's a lot of money, folks. Billions of dollars annually on TV, websites, social media, email. I mean, you know this. And, the, and what it's supposed to do is to foster discontent. And to help you oh so kindly part with that money that you have and send it their direction. It's that golden carrot always hanging out in front of us. Think of COVID, some of the messaging during COVID. It has cracked me up. It's almost like, help us help you. Spend your money with us. It just, I mean, it's almost like, let us help you anesthetize yourself right now since things are so hard. Part with that money. We can help you with that pain as if it's almost a favor done to us. Folks, you and I, in terms of marketing, media are an economic unit and a sea of other economic units, which all make up a market share. So there's something about consumerism that is very dehumanizing, okay? Will we be more conformed by consumerism or more by the gospel of Jesus? 
Which is going to shape us? Which is going to shape us? Last example. I don't know what to call this other than uh, avoidance of reality. So God deals in reality, right? So should we. Uh, But he often deals in reality in ways that we would choose to ignore. So when we see, and there's, this is a, there's a longer list than what I'm providing. I'm just giving you, this is a smattering. But when we see injustice or suffering or violence or oppression or hatred or just painful things, the brokenness of the world, there's always that temptation to bury our heads in the sand and to kind of minimize or dismiss it or say, eh, it's not that bad or to not deny they're happening altogether. Did you know there are still groups that deny the Holocaust happened? It's staggering. But they, they say, nope, didn't happen. Many conspiracy theories are actually an avoidance of reality. It's kind of like walks like a duck, quack, talks like a duck, quacks like a duck. What is it? It's a duck. Again, reality. But as Christians, we must be hard-nosed realists when it comes to the brokenness of the world. Not without hope. Not without hope. But very clear on how dire the situation is and our need for the Lord. Okay, We've got to be clear on that. You know, if you don't believe me, read Romans 1 to 11. Okay? So the question there with the avoidance of reality is, will we be conformed to the world's avoidance of suffering, pain, and brokenness? Will we bury our heads in the sand? Will we dismiss that? We just kind of, ah, it's too much. I just can't do that. And there are a host of others. Okay, those are some of the ways which the culture seeks to uh, conform us into its shape. So here's what I want you to get. This will be true. This has been true since the beginning of time. It's as old as the hills. There's always a prevailing pagan worldly, and how Paul means it, culture that's trying to squeeze you into its mold and trying to get you to adopt its values. Are you aware of that? That's happening right now. Do not be conformed to this world. Okay, first big piece. Second piece, and this is the corrective, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This transformation language, all that, Paul's smart. It's in the present tense. And what he means by that, he is stressing there's a constant need to work on this. Not a one-time deal. It's a continual and pretty vigilant process. Keep an eye on this, in other words. Do this. This Greek word for transformation, same word which we get for metamorphosis. Okay? Think of that as in metamorphosis, as in a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. An entirely new creature that didn't exist before, and with new DNA to prove it. So no small change here, transformation, but be transformed. Let me give you uh, another verse example from, uh, for this word. 2 Corinthians 3.18, love this verse. Boy, we got noise here, don't we? It's always something. If it's not a car tearing by or the lawn crew out or a helicopter, geez. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Folks, this transformation, it goes to the very depths of our being and our identity. It's not a surface change. It is, it's catastrophic. It's huge. And how does it take place? Well, the method and means is the renewal of your mind. Renewal of your mind. This is sort of part of that second piece I'd like to talk about. Now, as with body, okay, what Paul means here when he says mind is probably different than what you and I think of. We're coming from a different culture. We might say that our mind is, it's, it's my intellect. Uh, it's sort of that rational part of me. You might say, yeah, it's my brain. What's the, what's the big deal? And as Westerners, how we often conceive of our minds and our brains 
we often think of it as sort of something separate from me, separate from my body, kind of body and mind, and that's just holdovers of dualism and Cartesian ideas and all that jazz. That's not what Paul's talking about. When Paul speaks of our minds here, here's what he means. It's how we conceive of, how we process, how we perceive reality. Very important. It's that interpretive lens, that matrix, through which we see and counter and evaluate everything. That includes people, places, people's places and things. Your mind is more than just this place that stores information or has this raw data that you access from time to time. We understand, we reason, we work our way through ideas. We make moral and ethical decisions. We sort out ideas about God and humankind and the world we inhabit. That is the realm of the mind. To use our mind is to think, right? And again, you're going, well, duh. But again, I want to ground us in what Paul might mean by how we use that mind. We need a renewal and transformation of how we think. That's the renewal of our mind. So is your mind an important place? Loaded question, what would you say? It is. I got one courteous nod. Dan, I appreciate that. Thank you. Your mind and your heart, unbelievably important. Those are sort of the two areas that Scripture speaks of. You got to steward it. You got to take care of it with great intention. And yes, you do need to protect it. You do. Mind and heart, they're both the battlefield when it comes to the world, the flesh, and the devil. They are. Now, here's what I want to say. What you allow to take root in your mind is mighty important. Let me, let me explain here. This isn't to say you need to fear ideas or ideologies that are foreign to you. It does mean you need to be careful and thoughtful and evaluative, right? You don't just swallow your food whole. You chew it and you taste it a little bit first. If it's poison or is rotten, you spit it out. If it's good, you chew it. You swallow it, it goes on to nourish you. It's never wise to swallow something whole, is it? No, it's just not. So this idea is there's a call for wisdom and discernment here, right? The things, be mindful of the ideas, the ideologies, the theology that you adopt. And you need to ask yourself, are they cruciform? Are they cross-shaped? Are they gospel-shaped? Are they worldly-shaped? So it's no wonder that Paul says we're in need of a constant renewal of our minds, a consistent, if I can use this language, deprogramming. Uh, I don't know if you do this anymore on computers, but you know how you defrag your hard drive? Have I ever done that? I date myself. It's kind of the same thing. It's defragging your hard drive, right? Our thoughts don't naturally or innately follow how God thinks. We don't perceive and see things the way the Lord does. So this is a lifelong recalibration process. And if you didn't, you know, this is sort of a foregone conclusion. Our thinking is constantly bombarded and assailed with ideas and worldviews that are foreign and alien to how God thinks. We've got to be aware of that. So there's a call here for a renewed mind. I think this is really hard because you know what I'm talking about? I'm saying you know, this, this is kind of a call to like think about how you think. That's very abstract, but it's something we have to do. It's really hard work. It's a, you know what it's like? It's a bit like the operating system on your computer. It's back there in the background. It's running, and it's governing a ton of stuff, but you're only aware of it when it uh, fails or when it crashes, and then you're like, oh, my goodness. So how you think is a bit like the OS on your computer. Now, we rarely talk about this. We rarely think about this. Let me put it this way. We assume that that narrator in our head, that's our mind, 
provides us with accurate data about reality. We assume that. But lest we forget, our minds are just as fallen as the rest of us. So that narrator in our heads, that mind, that narrator is not reliable. Okay? So Paul is saying our mind needs renewing. The way we think, the things we've adopted, they need to be questioned, purged. So to be transformed by the renewal of your mind means we all need deprogramming after a point of conversion. It ain't, it ain't no good. With, I met Jesus and man, my brain works like it. You know, it works, it works just as it should. No, we are constantly working through worldly ideas and values. So everyone here, myself included, needs some measure of purging and deprogramming of our thinking. Now, again, this is a little high and up here and maybe theoretical. How about some specifics? Okay, I'm so glad you asked. I'll give you a specific How has our specific culture influenced our thinking in ways we haven't considered? Let me give you something I think is operating for every one of us in in the background. It's part of our OS. Um, As Americans, we are highly individualistic. Okay? We're proud about that, right? Rugged individualism. We're big on that. As Americans, we don't tend to think communally. That is not in our ethos. It's very counter... Uh, intuitive for us. We prize our individual sense of freedom. It's enshrined in our culture. Rugged individualism, right? And there's sometimes a strong sense of entitlement with sort of individual, individual rights and freedoms. However, the scriptures exhort us to use our freedom and service in love of others and in service to others, right? Not for our own gains. It, the scriptures actually beg us to say, you know what? I will take my individual rights And I'll actually lay those down for the betterment of someone else. Okay? So biblical freedom, that concept, and American freedom, folks, those are not the same thing. Don't confuse those because they are not the same thing. The images in the New Testament for the church, which are the picture of the restored human community in Jesus. It's all about connection. Think of the images. The body of Christ, connected. The household of God, connected. Relationships. The new temple, Individuals, yes, but unified in Jesus. So folks, while we are very independent as Americans, and while we don't know that, and that's shaped us for hmm, centuries, we aren't independent. I don't get to do whatever I want. The Bible calls that selfish. We belong to one another, do we not? We're independent. We're interdependent. Excuse me. What we do affects one another. We're interdependent. We're part of this greater whole. So how do we think? Our minds are probably more American than biblical. So we have to sort that out. We have to go, God, man, culture is a force to be reckoned with. So, and that rabbit hole goes pretty deep when you explore it. We need transformation. We need a renewal of our minds. That's one example. I could give you five more, but it's already going to be a longer sermon than I normally do. So let's just leave it at that. So with that renewed gospel-shaped mind, guess what? We are then far better equipped to approve and discern God's will. How about that? His good, acceptable, perfect will. Some have said this is kind of like to think God's thoughts after him, right? So to speak. This approval, this discernment process is to see things as God sees them. It allows us to sift and distort reality Accurately, based off the plumb line that is the gospel. It's about our mind, our thinking being aligned with God's. Okay? 
to move in concert with God's good perfect will. So let me give you the recap of one and two. We're almost done. Here's my uh, yeah, message version of it with some commentary. Verses one and two. If you understand the gospel, if you understand what Jesus has done for you, your life will be a sacrificial offering of your entire self to God. And that is your fitting and true worship. That's your act. You'll actively resist the ways in which the world of sin and death seek to conform you into its image. And instead, you'll be transformed by a renewed mind, a lifelong process of rethinking your thinking and the discernment empowered by the Holy Spirit. So that you might know God's good and perfect will and what he desires. As I said before, I won't be going on to verse 3. Somebody will say an amen. Uh, But let me say this about verses 3 through 8, the rest of the passage. That focuses on the body of Christ. And right out of the right out of the get right at the get go, there's a call from Paul to think about ourselves and about each other in a certain way. Think of think of yourselves. Don't consider yourselves this way. Think of others in this way. So again, it all goes back to <clears throat> how we think. Silly me, I initially thought I'd preach on eight verses this week. I and you are glad that is not happening. Let me leave you with a a couple of areas of thought. Questions, really. In view of Jesus, do you give yourself fully to God, your whole self? With that reservation, not hold anything back. Because how many of us kind of go, I'll give the Lord this, but I'm not giving him that. You know, it's kind of like, here are the no-fly zones of my life, Lord. Let me me just do that. (laughs) God chuckles at that. Do you give your whole self to the Lord? God intends to reform and renovate every part of our lives, every single part of it. How yielded are we to that? Do we give ourselves over to that? I I can tell you this, because I've learned it the hard way. That process definitely goes better with a willing participant. (laughs) It definitely goes better. Uh, If you fight God on that, trust me, he's going to outlast you. Uh, So are you yielded? Are you giving God everything, right? Second part, last piece. Uh, Wordsworth said, the world is too much with us. That's a poem. And he goes on to talk about getting and spending. We lay waste our powers. Uh, What shapes and informs your thinking the most? The world, what you see on your Twitter feed, social media feed, on the news, or the gospel? What forms you? Do you yearn to think God's thoughts after him? Where does your mind, notice I'm not saying does, I'm saying where does your mind need a good purge? Where does it? I didn't say it. I said, where? This is something to ask God for in prayer. Lord, where is my thinking flawed? Where is it worldly? Where is it not gospel shaped? That's a great question. Great prayer. Bold prayer, but great prayer. Where does the gospel of Jesus need to dethrone some idols and transform and reorient reorient our entire way of thinking? As the old saying goes, the mind is a terrible thing to waste.